All right, well, today we, uh, staying here, are going to come to the end of the prophecy, the end of the oracle. We started many weeks ago examining the words of the prophet of Nahum. Today we come to an end of our examination, our dissection of the prophet's words. You may remember, as we now turn to Nahum chapter 3, with only three chapters in the, the prophet's book, that it all started with an observance of God's anger that he had upon the Ninevites. We look back very briefly at chapter 1, verse 3, and we see that it tells us, according to whichever translation you may prefer, I actually like the King James in this particular translation, but it tells us that the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And when you read that, you can quickly think, well, yeah, that's God, because God is he's merciful, he's compassionate, he's loving, and yet he is slow to anger because he has the patience that we need. But it also tells us, if you look in the latter part of chapter 1, verse 3, we shouldn't misread it and think that God is completely loving and compassionate. Yes, he is. But I want you to see he's also very angry at this moment. The end of the English Standard Version says he will by no means clear the guilty, given us the fact that he's angry at these Ninevites for what atrocities and what things they've been doing. The one I prefer to King James says he will not at all acquit the wicked. And acquit means to release or to exonerate or to be found somehow not guilty. So God is angry at the Ninevites. So he has no intention of finding these wicked Assyrians, the Ninevites, not guilty because he sees they are guilty as charged. They are guilty of inflicting some grotesque, heinous acts upon the chosen. I mean, they have taken people that were exiled and and impaled them on poles or raped and tortured them or have beheaded these people. I mean, this is some of the things that this group of people were known to do, the wicked, evil, ruthless Ninevites. They're guilty as charged. I mean, God initially used the Assyrians to come in and conquer his disrebellious people of Israel and to send them into exile. But now the time's come to an end. And judgment has come upon the great city of Nineveh and the Assyrians. Desolation is sure, as you can see, it tells us in chapter 2, verse 10, desolate, desolation and ruin. That's what's coming upon the great city. Last week, we took an opportunity to lead into the second chapter of Nahum, which spelled out some of the things that would happen to the city as Nahum was seeing the vision that would occur actually in 612 B.C. He saw it long before that. It came to be true in 612 B.C. as he laid it out for us. That would happen in the second chapter. So now we leap into the end. We come to chapter 3. And today spells out for us the end of Nineveh. It is the complete end of Nineveh. When I say complete end, let me remind you that as these things occurred to Nineveh in 612 BC, I said it last week, let me say it once more, the complete end of Nineveh, because they could not find any remnant of Nineveh at all until 1845, many, many years later, did they ever find anything at all of the city of Nineveh. Let us stand together and read the text that spells it out for us in Nahum chapter 3, which brings the study to conclusion. 
listen for the woe, which also signals then that something horrible is about to be upon the city. And the woe occurs in the very first verse of the third chapter, where it says this. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey, the crack of the whip, the rumble of the wheel, the galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, host of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end, they stumble over the bodies. And all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with their whorings and peoples with her charms. Verse 5 says, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? Are you better than Thebes that set by the Nile with water around her, her rampart a sea, and water her wall? Cush was her strength, Egypt too, and that without limit. Put and the Libyans were her helpers. Yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street. For her honored men, lots were cast, and all her great men were bound in chains. You also will be drunken. You will go into hiding. You will seek a refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are like fig leaves with first ripe figs. If shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. Behold, your troops are women in your midst. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. Draw water for the siege. Strengthen your force. Go into the clay. Tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. There will the fire devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will devour you like locusts. Multiply yourselves like the locusts. Multiply like the grasshopper. You increased your merchants more than the stars of the heavens. The locust spread its wings and flies away. Your princes are like grasshoppers. Your scribes like clouds of locusts, selling on the fences in the day of cold. When the sun rises, they fly away. No one knows where they are. Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. There is no easy near her. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? Father. Lord, we read your text this morning, Lord, and we pray that your spirit will lead and guide us into better understanding this text, or at least today, Lord, understand how it can apply to us. These words may be foreign to us, Lord. They are written so many years ago. We pray, Lord, now that you'll lead, you'll guide and direct us. I pray the words that will be expressed, be said here today, would not be the words I want to say, but the words that you want us to hear. So let us apply this text, Lord, to our lives ever living today we thank you in advance for what shall happen here today in jesus name we pray amen
Well, as you're being seated, you may think about this word we've looked at today of Nahum chapter 3. And if you're a student of the word, you may see that this final chapter of Nahum's oracle, or the burden that's pronounced upon Nineveh, has many comparisons of the apocalyptic words of Revelation. John, of course, is the author of the book of Revelation. You know, he received this vision at Patmos and about how God's wrath be placed upon the earth for a period of seven years during tribulation. You know, last week, we actually ventured into Revelation a little bit in chapter 6 as we took some of chapter 6 in Revelation with the opening of the seals and compared that then to Nahum chapter 2. But with the third chapter, the complete end of Nineveh, we find even more Revelation comparisons. So let us embark today in the beginning and find a few of those notable comparisons. The first is this. Woe, woe to the bloody city, as Nahum pronounces it in the very beginning of the third chapter in the first verse. Now, interestingly, if you're a student of Revelation, you'd know that words are pronounced very similar, especially in Revelation chapter 8, verse 13. In chapter 8, there is the opening of the trumpets, which is the second series of seven judgments of wrath being placed upon the earth. First was the seals, then comes the judgments, then comes the bowls. So the trumpets being placed in the middle are introduced, especially trumpets 5, 6, and 7, with the words, woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth. As in, it's not going to be pleasant for anybody who still remains at that particular time. Woe to the bloody city and Nahum. Woe, woe, woe to the people who dwell on the earth as John writes the vision he's receiving pertaining to the end time. Now, while we can find that particular comparison that does exist between Nahum and Revelation with that one word, woe, it should be noted that typically, when the word woe is used in the Bible, that's not the only time it's used. It's usually followed with a pronouncement of forthcoming wrath and judgment. For example, in Isaiah chapter 3, verse 11, we see it once more, where Isaiah is saying, Woe to the wicked! It shall be ill with them, for what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. And perhaps that verse could even be applying to what's happened in Nineveh. But there's also Jeremiah chapter 50, verse 27. As Jeremiah the prophet speaks to what shall come of the Chaldeans when he states, Woe to them, for their day has come, the time of their punishment. And that's just a couple of examples, but notice how typically when the word woe is being used in Scripture, it is not pleasant. It is typically followed by a pronouncement of wrath and judgment the unleashment, if you will, of God's fury upon the people. But it's not just an Old Testament usage of the word. Even Jesus used the word woe. In Matthew 23, he used it seven times. You see behind me, he spoke multiple times to the scribes and the Pharisees. He said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Again, not pleasant for them to receive a woe from our Lord. So altogether, then, if you take woe as it's used in the scriptures, it is expressed 94 times among 86 verses. It is a word normally followed by God's 
fury unleashed upon a nation or a group of people. Whoa. Not pleasant. So I suggest to you then that none of us ever want to hear the word woe because it never results in anything positive. But that's what shall someday be upon the evil and faithful that continue to reject God's one and only son. Woe shall be upon them. And that's the first thing we can find in the comparison between Nahum and Revelation. But there's a second comparison we can kind of go to and recognize. And it's, de it's dealing with the piling up of the corpses of the dead. Nahum had written in this chapter in verse 3, horsemen charging, flashing sword, glittering spear, host of slain. Look, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. Looks pretty ugly. Looks like a pile of bodies are being accumulated pretty quickly. But it's similar to how the end time shall be. In Revelation 14, John writes, So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the great harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Now, a lot of us may not be familiar with a horse's bridle, but a horse's bridle can be approximately four feet high. We don't talk about distance in stadia, but a 1,600 stadia is 484 miles. So listen to what John is saying. In the end time, bloodshed will be so severe, so many bodies, There'll be four foot high of blood for 184 miles. I can't even fathom that. I don't think any of us can. That's not exactly what Nahum is saying with Nineveh. But he is saying that there will be the piling of the bodies, the corpses. So yes, there'll be bloodshed during that time. As there will be as times progress for those, again, who are left behind, who have not accepted Christ. So that's two notable comparisons, but yet let's go one more to a third. We refer to the whoredom in the harlot, verse 4 of Nahum chapter 3, and all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and the deadly charms, who betrays nations with their whorings and peoples with their charms. Well, once again, it's not exact wording we find in Revelation and John's vision, but there has some similarities. In Revelation chapter 17, Verses 3 through 5. It says, He carried me away into the spirit, into the wilderness. I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. On her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. Again, the wording is different, but it pronounces for us how there'll be immorality, how immorality in Nineveh was commonplace, and how immorality in time will be just as common, but most likely worse. 
And we could continue to fill all the time we have together with notable comparisons between the destruction and desolation of Nineveh as we've read in each of these chapters and upon some things we find in Revelation that we place upon the earth during the tribulation. But time prohibits any further comparison. So we draw all that to conclusion by saying this, that the Lord God Almighty has judged Nineveh. They're completely unworthy. I mean, you've seen in this chapter, in verse 5, as well as the previous chapter 2, in verse 13, where he said, I am against you. I am against you. It's a very sad day for Nineveh. As the old saying goes, they've made their bed and now they have to lie in it. The Ninevites were ruthless, wicked, evil people not even remotely close to being God-fearing, God-loving people. We talked about some of the things that they were known for, the beheading, the impaling, the rape and torture. I mean, in case we, if we're forgetting that, let us not forget in the very beginning of Jonah. We studied months ago the very beginning of Jonah in chapter 1, verse 2. The Lord recognized how wicked and evil they were. It says, for their wickedness has come up before me. God was aware of it, as he's aware of all things. And now he's had enough. The people have been judged as guilty. Their time has come to an end. Desolation is sure and shall be done. But let us slow down, consider that, and begin to maybe go a new direction and ask this question, perhaps ponder. Did it have to be that way? Did the once great city have to be decimated, eradicated, have to be destroyed in such a way? As you think about that and ponder, I immediately begin to think in my mind, my heart, that no, it didn't have to be as such. I mean, in the book of Jonah, we observe Jonah's hatred of the Ninevites, I mean, he did not want to go. He ran the other direction. He disobeyed God. Now, God got his attention, sure. But we see illustration of how God loved the people of Nineveh. Towards the end of the fourth and final chapter of Jonah, we find the Lord's compassion upon the people that we're talking about now, again, 150 years prior. But notice how he had love and compassion upon the Ninevites. In chapter 4, verse 11, it says, I should, should I not have pity upon Nineveh? I mean, God shows pity upon the people. I mean, that verse illustrates God's forgiving nature, his love he has for all people. I mean, granted, it's not John 3, 16, which says, For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish, should everlasting life. I mean, John 3.16 truly tells about God's loving, forgiving nature. I mean, as does 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, which reminds us that God should desire for none to perish, but for come to come to repentance. So there's verses that illustrate God's loving nature. And perhaps that one in Jonah also gave us an indication of his loving, forgiving nature when he had pity upon the Ninevites. But here now, in three chapters of Nahum, it's 150 years later, 
God pronounces an ugly, complete end to Nineveh. So the question now we're entertaining and pondering is, did it have to be that way? Did the once great city have to be desolated, decimated, eradicated, destroyed? And again, I think the answer that we could give ourselves is it didn't have to be that way. No, it didn't have to be. I mean, the people once turned to God, but now they've turned on God. They've turned away from him, which God had no choice ultimately but to act. And now it's a very sad ending to what could have been a great story. I mean, with Jonah, if you take Jonah and Nahum and put them together with Jonah, God was willing to send the prophet to look upon their wickedness, their evil way, but but also then to preach to them and and have their hearts to turn to loving, repentant hearts. In Jonah chapter 3, verse 5, there's evidence. People in Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast. They put on sackcloth, all evident that they were having a heart that was repenting. In verse 10 of the same chapter in Jonah, chapter 3, God saw their works. They turned from their evil way. God repented then of the evil that he said he would do upon them. So it looked good. For a while, didn't it look good? I mean, it's a great, wonderful story. It could have been the perfect Hollywood ending of riding off into the sunset, happy trails. For a while. But unfortunately, There is, again, that theme they were introduced multiple weeks ago that we've been dancing around from time to time. Unfortunately, that theme told us that one generation's revival, that revival that happened in Nineveh, guaranteed nothing for the next and subsequent generations. We applied it to all of our lives. A revival in our time, our country, our life, that's happened would guarantee nothing for the subsequent generations to follow. That's the theme we've danced around for multiple weeks. One generation's revival guarantees nothing for the next. But as we end our time with Nahum, what, what does that mean? I mean, what do we need to take away from that theme? In our final message on Nahum, how can we take that theme and apply that to our lives thousands of years away from the destruction that we read about that was placed upon the once great city. To answer that question, I must once again, I know it's repetitive, talk about the combination of the books of Jonah and Nahum. Because as you look at Jonah and then read Nahum, it demonstrates that there was a nation of degenerate, wicked, evil, ruthless people that can repent. They did, and they turned to God. But it also shows us that subsequent generations gravitated back to their evil ways of their forefathers. So what we see, and then in Nahum, is evidence of a generation or generations that came without repentant hearts. In 150 years after the revival occurred in Nineveh, according to Jonah, we see in Nahum a falling away and a generation that comes upon the scene without having any fear and any love of God.
just like maybe their forefathers had before Jonah was sent to Nineveh. So what does that mean? Why do I bring back the once more, again, to answer the question, how can we take the theme and apply it to our lives thousands of years removed from the destruction of one great city? How can we take all this in consideration and begin to apply it? What is the takeaway? This is the takeaway. In essence, what we see by examining Jonah slash Nail is something played out right in front of us every day. That God gives us free will. To all of mankind, he gives us the liberty to make our own choices. Free will he gives to every generation, to every man, every woman, every child. He gives us the freedom to make our choice. He doesn't force us to accept his son. He offers us the choice. And what we find then as an unfortunate circumstance of him giving us free will, the choice, is that mankind often chooses something else, something other than his son. And in the case of Nineveh, the following generations, after that revival that we seemingly see to occur in Jonah, they chose to turn away from God. They chose to turn back to evil. So what one generation's revival, again, guaranteed nothing for the next. So if all that said and all that noted, the question then that maybe we should be asking ourselves to have an ultimate application from all of our time in Jonah and or Nahum is to be asking the question concerning to the current generation. Just where is the generation of our young people today as it relates to Jesus? That's the question we should be asking. As we see our theme that one generation guarantees nothing for the next, we should be asking ourselves, where is this generation today of the young people, our future leaders of tomorrow, as it relates to Jesus? That's the question. So I began to think about it, began to recognize that over the years, there have been multiple names given to generations. You know this as well as I do. But I put up there a few for us to consider. Because earlier in the 1900s, I don't think anybody was born during 1901 to 1924. Again, I'm looking over this direction. You're looking with me, I know. I don't think that they were born as the greatest generation from 1901 to 1924. But notice the subsequent generation had a name called the silent generation from 1928 to 1945. Now, here's the thing. I haven't known Dan for as long as I've known John. I've known John for quite some time. And I'm getting to know Dan. Why did they ever name him the silent generation? They're never silent. They're always talking to each other. They're always making some noise. But that's the generation name they gave them, the silent generation. They were born during that time. But then there was my generation, the baby boomers, which I barely qualify for because I was born in 1963. So notice how the baby boomers post-war from 46 to 64. 
That's the generation I fall in. And maybe a lot of us are in that particular category. If not, then maybe we become part of Generation X, which is from 65 to 1980. I graduated high school in 1981, which began the millennial generation, which would be my children. Chase be one of them, Perla one of them. Many people here probably part of the millennial generation. Josh, you're a millennial. Good or bad, you're a millennial. All right. But then that's the generation names given through 1996. Remember, the question we're asking ourselves is where is the current generation in relation to Jesus? So they've come up with a new generation name. Generation Z is the name given to young people born after 1997. That group of people right there is Generation Z. Levi and Micah, Jackson, Isaac, even Paige, and well, not maybe not Paige, but certainly Grace that was here earlier, will fall into Generation Z. We're going to come back to Generation Z. But now they've even went further and said, well, Generation Z's come to an end. We need a new generation. Let's just name them Alpha. So now we have a Generation Alpha. They are the newest group of young people. And researchers say that this group came along in 2010 and they'll be in the group until like the mid-2020s. That's their birthing years. That group of people is not in this room. That group of people is back there with the leaders right now, having their own little children's time of study. But listen, there is 2.5 million generation alphas. They're the only generation to be born entirely in the 21st century. Interestingly, maybe why researchers said they started in 2010, this Generation Alpha, is it said it coincided with the beginning of the iPad in 2010. I didn't know that. But the new Generation Alpha, again, in children's church, really they're, they're, too, they're too new to have a lot of information about their current relationship if they have one with Jesus. So we go back to Generation Z. I'm not picking on teenagers today, but that's the generation that we should be most concerned about right now because they're our leaders of tomorrow. So Generation Z, which we have four of them here today, we have at least six within the church. Generation Z, what is this generation of the young people? How is the relation to Jesus? Now, as they're about to hear this, I've already discussed it with the young people. In our Sunday school earlier today, I gave them all the information I'm about to give you of their faith or lack thereof. And let me tell you, it's frightening. James White wrote a book called Meet Generation Z. In his study and research, he said the most defining marks of members of Generation Z in terms of other spiritual lives is their spiritual illiteracy. They do not know what the Bible says. They do not know the basis of Christian belief or theology. They do not know what the cross is all about. We had that very discussion in our class time with our students here as they relate to their buddies at school. They do not know what it means to worship. That's Generation Z. 
That's the generation of the young people, a lot of the young people in this room, young people who go to school every day with these kids. But that's not all you need to know. We need to know this, but that's not all we need to know because we're asking ourselves, what is the current generation's relation to Jesus? So further, they found this. The Generation Z is disconnecting completely from religion, spirituality, and the larger questions of life. In fact, the Barna Group, that is study, characterizes Generation Z as the first truly post-Christian generation. Listen, with only 4% adhering to biblical worldview, that's 4 out of 100. 100 teenagers, only 4, would adhere to biblical worldview. As a result, scriptural authority has come under fire and fewer teenagers are trusting what the Bible has to say about contemporary issues. He concluded, overall barriers to faith and loss of interest in the church have led to increasing rates of atheistic, atheistic and agnostic beliefs. The Barner Group discovered that percentage of teens who identify themselves as an atheist is double that of the adult population. I asked each one of them if they knew people through school who was an atheist, and they all did. We discussed the difference between atheist and agnostic. And they have a lot of people who are not agnostic. But this is where we are. We need to be cognizant of the facts. The children of the millennials. We're the alphas. I mean, the Generation Z. Primary Generation Z for understanding is like 12 to 20-year-olds. And let me just tell you, they're not excited about being a Christian. Most of them could take it or leave it, and a large majority are just leaving it. As you're looking at me, what you believe is not the same as their belief. And it's not just a little bit different. It is radically different. I mean, radically different. Just ask them. So having discovered that, the question now is what can we do? I'm telling you, we got to pray. We must pray. In addition to that, we must lead and guide and direct our young generation to the truth. And you hear they say, well, are they going to listen? If we guide them, are they going to listen? Well, children hear a lot more than you think they hear. A lot more. But here's the thing, they definitely see our actions. Oh, by the way, were you aware that you act out what you believe? Were you aware of that? I mean, you may tell your children to attend church, or you may tell your children you need to pray, or you may tell your children you need to read the Bible, but if they never hear you pray and never see you reading it, never see your church, what are they going to believe? You know the old expression, Action speaks louder than words. So what are they going to believe? We need to be asking ourselves, as we're gathered here this morning, thinking about this next generation, where are you spiritually? Where am I? I mean, would I consider myself spiritually alive or dead? Am I on life support, needing some sort of revival? Because we need to be revived. This country needs revival. 
And as I think about that, I recognize and look at all of you, including myself, thinking it starts with you, Dan. It starts with you, Chris. It starts with you, Bob. It starts with you, Jenny. It starts with all of us. It starts with everybody in this room. Our country needs a radical wake-up call. we got to wake up the masses. we got to preach to our children. We have to give them the word. we got to share it with them. We have to be noticeably different with their actions lining up with their words. I mean, here's the thing. The current generation may be falling away, but we need to fall in love with Jesus again and let our actions speak loudly. Again, the question is, where are you spiritually? I'm not condemning. I'm looking at myself as much as anybody else. Where are we individually, corporately together, as Crossbow Baptist Church, where are we spiritually? Are we alive or are we dead? Are we in life support? Are we needing revival? I think all of us need revival. So here's the thing. Some of you know that the Bible speaks of seven churches. Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3, they speak of seven churches who are real churches. Not all exist still now, but they are real churches at that time. But they're also a representation of the generations subsequent to the coming of Christ. Again, they're listed in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. By the way, one is called a dead church. That would be Sardis. And one is called lukewarm, which would be Laodicea. So we asking ourselves, then, which are we? Will we be one of these categories or one of the others? We consider dead or we consider lukewarm. We need to know. So over the next several weeks, we're going to venture into Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3 and look at these seven churches. We're going to find out information about them. And then when we find information about them, we're going to compare and apply that to our lives, to our church, to our country. Because, folks, we are not, as a country, going the right way. If the generation from 12 to 20-year-olds, only four out of 100 have any kind of biblical worldview, then where are we going to be in the 20, 30 years? It's only going to get worse. So we have to do our part. And the first part we do is by individually looking at ourselves and seeing where we are spiritually. We need to wake up. We need to let everybody else see something different about us. You're thinking, well, that might be next to impossible. Well, with God, all things are possible. And if we're willing, he will lead. But here's the thing. When I talk about standing out, I just want to recognize how we must know. we got to be so much different that people will see us as unusual. And then we'll just see something unusual about us. Maybe something will spark within them, and they'll come up to you and say, what is different about you that I want to receive? We must stand out and be different. Because you're standing out and being different draws someone's attention. Have you ever noticed, I have a crowd of people. If you're a crowd of people, one person stops and starts looking up. And they're just intently focused looking up that the people around them will start looking up to? You ever notice that? Because they're curious creatures. People want to know, what's that dude look 
looking at. So look, keep you, you look, keep looking and looking and looking. Eventually, someone sees you looking. Someone sees you different, and they'll look and see what is different. That perhaps they will receive Christ. We must be that different. We must be that noticeable. We'll venture into Revelation to maybe help us out a little bit, of course. The churches can speak to us. We learn about them to find out where we are and maybe where we need to go. We conclude our time in Nahum and look forward to what the Word can tell us about us being spiritually alive or dead. Let us be alive. Father, Lord, we thank you for this message. We thank you for this day, Lord. We thank you for the multiple blessings you give to us, Lord. Scripture is sometimes hard to understand. We need messages sometimes like, yes, Lord, it's difficult to preach, difficult to receive, but it's, Lord, one that maybe we need to hear because we do need to be aware, be cognizant of the generation that's before us. How maybe they're not truly receiving the word and not having the outlook that we as adults, we as a parents would maybe like for them to receive and to have. So Lord, we pray over this generation. We pray over it, Lord, and ask that you be Lord with us as we begin to lead and guide and direct them. I pray, Lord, you open their ears, open their heart to receive that news, the good news about Jesus, Lord, how they can receive that. Guide us, Lord, direct us in their efforts. As you get the glory for all we do, let us not seek any of our own. Lord, let's even turn to today and to now, Lord. Let's reflect upon the young people here today, and if there's somehow, some way, one that has really not connected to you, I pray, Lord, that you'll enter the heart now, Lord, and begin to stir. Maybe today, stir this week. I pray, Lord, for all of us to have an our heart to be stirred, recognizing that we're not exempt from having some, having some doubts and curiosity. I pray, Lord, that you'll be with us as well. Help us, Lord, to come alive again. Let us fall in love with you, Jesus, as maybe we did in our first day. So we thank you then for the message here today. We thank you for what you shall have for us. And as always, we thank you for your son, Jesus, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.